You can open your Bible to Psalm 119. I'm going to look at verse 1 to verse 8 this morning. Just a quick reminder of what we have talked about together on Sunday mornings over the last year. We started off in January talking about the church, asking the question, what does the New Testament have to say about the church? And we pulled passages from a number of different places to understand who we are as the people of God and what God expects of us as the church. Then we moved to the book of Titus, short book in the New Testament, and it was very helpful to follow up our series on the church with the book of Titus because the book of Titus uh, deals with the question of how can we be a church put into order. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to put those churches into biblical functioning order, and so as we went through that book, we continually talked about how can we be a church put into biblical order. Then over the summer, we talked about Jesus. We spent several months asking the question, who is Jesus? What do we need to know about him? Who is he? What did he do on our behalf? What difference does all of this make in our lives? And we've been over the last couple of months talking about Jesus. This morning, we're going to jump into the Old Testament, Psalm 119, and we're going to spend the rest of this year all the way up through the very end of 2023, working our way through Psalm 119. So just a few basic things that you might need to know about this chapter as we begin a several-month-long trek through the longest chapter in the Bible. Number one, Psalm 119 is a poem. It's an acrostic poem, and it's based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the way it works is that the 176 verses are divided into 22 stanzas. Each stanza has eight verses, eight lines of poetry. And the first letter of the first word of each of those eight lines of poetry is devoted to one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we're looking at the Aleph section. That's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. I'm sure you all brushed up on your biblical Hebrew this week, so you can read what I have on the screen. But maybe you can see over on the right side, Hebrew moves right to left, not left to right, which is very confusing. But you can see all of those letters that look the same. Those are Aleph's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the structure uh, of this poem is designed to sort of give you mental triggers for what is the first line. And sometimes, you know, if you've memorized a Bible verse, if you can get the first word or two, you can get going on the rest of it. And that was the psalmist's aim, to help us remember the things that he's written in Psalm 119. 176 verses, almost all of them. We'll note the exceptions as we go. Almost every verse makes some reference to the Bible, to the Word of God. Now, he doesn't just say the Bible, and he doesn't always call it the Word of God. The psalmist uses a number of different words, law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commands, rules, word, promise. Sometimes when you see a particular word used, you can sort of pull out a particular meaning or a particular emphasis. But sometimes he's just using these different words more or less interchangeably. Throughout the psalm, the one thing that he's talking to us about is the written Word of God. He's driving us back over and over again to think about the Word of God and the role that it ought to play in our lives. Now, you're here on a Sunday morning. You could be doing lots of different things. 
So I assume you have some understanding of the importance of God's Word, but I don't want to take that for granted. And I just want to point out the very important truth that it is the Word of God given to the people of God that sets the people of God apart and makes them different. This has always been true. It was true in the beginning when God spoke specifically to Adam and Eve, the creatures He created in His image. Not to any of the other parts of the creation, but specifically to His creatures He engaged in conversation. This is true when you get to Genesis 12 and you meet a man named Abram who would become Abraham, and the very first thing that happens in the relationship, and it's an important relationship between God and Abram, the very first thing that happens, the Lord spoke to Abram. He had something to say to him, and God's Word set Abram apart. This is true of Israel, Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is getting ready the new generation, to enter into the promised land. Their parents have died in the wilderness. These children have grown up. They're ready to enter the promised land. And Moses is preparing them, and he says to them, you're different than all of the other peoples. Not because there's a lot of you. Not because you're good. Not because you're more powerful or you have a lot of money. You're different because the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. He's talking about Mount Sinai where the people were gathered and the Lord spoke to the people. The Word of God set them apart. Psalm 119 talks about God speaking, yes, in creation and the stars and the things that have been made, but specifically speaking to His people in His Word. And so all of this chapter, this great chapter, is talking about the Word of God and it's the Word of God God speaking to us that sets us apart as His people. So, here's the big idea of the opening section of Psalm 119. Those who walk in the Word of God will be blessed. That's straight out of verse 1. Those who walk in the Word of God will be blessed by God. And really, the structure of this opening stanza is pretty simple. This big idea is in verse 1, and then it gets explained in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And then there's one little tricky part that we'll have to deal with at the end of verse 8, but we're going to begin by reading the text. So you follow along as we read Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart, When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Lord God, we stop this morning and we thank you that you are a God who speaks to your people. You have spoken to us as human beings. You have spoken uh, to Abram and to his family. You have spoken 
to the nation of Israel as you met with them at Mount Sinai. You have sent prophets. You have sent your son. You've spoken to us through your son in these last days. And Lord, you've spoken to us in your word. Uh, We're thankful for the Bible. And as we begin a a five-month journey through Psalm 119, thinking about the place of your word in our lives, uh, we pray that your spirit would help us. And we pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've given you the big idea. What I want to do this morning is talk about the two words that you filled in if you're following along in the outline. I want to talk about blessing and I want to talk about the word walk. And I want to make sure that we're thinking biblically about those two words. And then I want to answer one tricky, uh, surprising question that shows up at the end of verse 8 and see how all of these things in Psalm 119, 1-8 point us to Jesus. So we'll start with the idea of blessing. I think we need to be very careful as people who live in the United States when we begin to talk about blessing. I think if you listen to people pray, just sort of on the spur of the moment, off the cuff prayers, I think blessing is one of the things we ask God to do the most. Am I right? Maybe you sit down and you eat, and maybe you have a routine prayer that just sort of rolls off your mouth. Lord, please bless the food. Lord, please bless the hands that prepared the food. Lord, please bless our bodies to your service. And many times those things just roll off your, off your tongue, and you don't give them much thought about the fried burrito that you're about to eat, and you're asking God to bless that to your body some way, somehow. You believe that God can do miracles, so you say, God, please bless this fried burrito to my body. But we ask God to bless all sorts of things. We ask God to bless our worship services, our Bible studies. We ask God to bless our preteen camps. We ask God to bless the things that we're doing as a church. It's just something that we typically ask God to do. And if you take your definition of blessing, you shouldn't do this, but if you take your definition from social media for blessing you're going to end up, like a lot of Americans, thinking that blessing is good stuff. It's good stuff uh, that we like. It's pleasant things. It's job promotions. It's new cars. uh, It's everybody being healthy. It's things going the way that we want them to go. It's generally the idea that life is unfolding according to our desires. That's how people typically talk about blessing when they get on social media and they say, oh, I'm so blessed. Usually they're not at a funeral, are they? Usually they're not with a loved one in a hospital room. Usually they're not uh, reading a pink slip. Usually something positive is happening in their life and they acknowledge it as a blessing from God. So let's just think biblically about blessing for a minute. If you go all the way back to Genesis, God creates everything and He blesses His creation. He says that it's very good and He blesses it. And He takes human beings man and woman, male and female, and He blesses them uniquely as creatures created in His image. He also blesses the seventh day, and He sets it aside as a unique day of rest and worship. So there's blessing in the opening chapters of the Bible. We mentioned Abram just a moment ago. God speaks to Abram. He spoke to Abram. And what He said to him is, I want you to pack up, and I want you to leave, and I want you to go to a new place. And Abram I intend to bless you, and I intend to bless the people who bless you, and I intend to make you a blessing for the entire earth. Abram, through your family, I intend to bless every family 
on planet earth. All of the peoples through you. You keep reading. You get to uh, Psalm chapter 1, which we talked about last week. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delights on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You keep reading, which we did last week, through Psalm 2. And you get to the end, and you realize that there's a Christ who's promised, the Son of God, and that he has secured blessing for us, because we haven't done very good at the Psalm 1 blessing, not sinning. We kind of made a mess of that. So the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah has come, and he has secured blessing for his people, and we are invited to take refuge in him. Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him, the Son of God, the Messiah. So the Bible has lots to say about blessing, and it's hard to just define it in one simple, neat sentence. So I'm just going to give you three sentences with three words each, and we'll try to make a run at this idea of blessing. How do we understand blessing in the Bible? Number one, blessing centers on God's will, God's favor, and God's pleasure. God's will. If your definition of blessing centers on what you like, what you want, what your will is, what your plans are, what you want to happen, that may or may not line up with God's idea of blessing. Blessing in the Bible begins with what God wants, not necessarily with what we want apart from His grace in our lives. It begins with what God desires and likes not necessarily what the world desires and likes. That's just a baseline understanding that you have to have in place for thinking about blessing. Number two, blessing brings us joy, happiness, and delight. Now, if I could just read some of your minds right now, some of you are thinking, our preacher's not very smart because I've been told all my life that joy and happiness are not the same thing. That joy is one thing and happiness is the other. And here he has them both side by side. And he's making me write the word happiness in right next to the word joy. And I've been told that those are not the same thing. In fact, some of you have probably heard from a pastor or a podcast or a social media post or a Bible study teacher a statement that sounds like this. God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. You heard somebody say something to that effect? You probably have at some point in time. That statement is an attempt to correct the mistaken idea in the United States that God doesn't care about holiness at all. And it's wrong. It's an unbiblical idea that God is not concerned with the holiness of His people. He is a thousand percent concerned with the holiness of His people. I just don't think that's a helpful way of saying that. I think if you want to make a correction and say God cares about holiness, what you should say is God cares about holiness. And you don't need to drag this business of happiness into it. Because you know what I think? I think when you read through the Bible, especially the book of Psalms, that God does care about your holiness, and He cares about your joy, and He cares about your happiness, and He cares about the things you delight in. All of it. He cares about all of that stuff. And when we say He doesn't care about your happiness as much as your holiness, what it sounds like is that those two things are in opposition to each other, like you have to pick one or the other. It makes it sound like God is a little bit grouchy, does it not? 
It makes it sound like God doesn't care if you have any joy or happiness or delight in your life whatsoever as long as you follow all the rules. That's not the God of the Bible. I think the biblical view would be to say something to the effect of God cares about your holiness and your happiness and He knows that the way that you will be truly happy is through holiness. Those two things are not in opposition to each other. It's not an either or, it's a both and. He cares about your holiness and He cares about your happiness. That's abundantly true when you think about blessing in the Bible. Some translations are not that far off when they come across this word in the Old Testament or the New Testament, blessed, and they translate it happy. That's not a bad translation. That's part of the idea of blessing. God cares about our joy and our happiness and our delight. Number three, blessing leads to what we would call shalom, rightness, and wholeness. Left to ourselves, we chase sin, and sin always destroys things. We think in our twisted minds and hearts, we think if I can pursue this thing and get it, regardless of what's what Scripture says about it, what God says about it, that thing will make me happy and fulfilled and content. But really, sin always just destroys and it disintegrates us. It takes us from being whole people and it makes us fragmented, broken, hurting people. And the blessing of God reverses that. The blessing of God brings peace into our lives. That's the the Hebrew word shalom. It means rightness. Everything is right and in its place the way it ought to be. It means wholeness. Not disintegration, but integration. God's blessing brings those things into our lives. So that's a run at the word bless, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's talk about this word walk. The big idea is that those who walk in the Word of God will be blessed. What does it mean to walk in the Word of God? It begins with a wholehearted, unwavering commitment to the Word of God. Wholehearted, unwavering. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Hebrew poetry uses parallelism, so when it talks about Seeking God with your whole heart, it's the parallel to the first part that talks about, verse 2, those who keep His testimonies. Who are those people who keep His testimonies? Well, they're those who seek Him with their whole heart. How do you seek God with your whole heart? Well, you keep His testimonies. You're committed to His Word. There's a wholehearted commitment involved in walking in the Word of God. I realize it's August. We have barely made it to football. I think we had one preseason NFL game the other night, so I know you're just getting geared up for football. But I thought you would like to know that the Kansas men's basketball team played exhibition games this week. Some of you know I'm a Kansas basketball fan. Some of you don't know this, but I love Kansas men's basketball. And they're in Puerto Rico. They did not invite me to go with them. I'm here with you. They're in Puerto Rico playing exhibition games. And Thursday, while I was working on this sermon, I promise you, my left computer monitor had a sermon on it, but the right computer monitor had a basketball game on it. And I watched this game. I think somebody was holding a cell phone and trying to balance it in Puerto Rico, and you could sort of watch the game. I love Kansas basketball. I love them. 
That means I do not love or like the Missouri Tigers. I don't like them. And that means if you move from the east to the west, I don't like the Kansas State Wildcats. I don't like them. I'm wholehearted in my commitment to the Jayhawks. There's not a sliver of my heart if you put me on a lie detector test. Is there any corner of your heart that has any affection for the team in purple or the team in yellow? Not one piece. I'm wholehearted in my commitment and my devotion to the Jayhawks. If you're a sports fan, you can probably say that about your team and other teams. I'm all in with them, and I'm not chasing anything else. That's the kind of commitment being described here to the Word of God. You understand this commitment, walking in God's Word, it doesn't mean I'm going to do what God's Word says until it bumps up against what Disney or culture tells me, and then I'm going to take a detour around and go in a new direction. It's a wholehearted commitment to the whole thing, to say God knows what He's talking about in His Word, and I am going to be wholehearted and my commitment to his word. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 3. As he's explaining this commitment. He says, these blessed people who keep his testimonies and seek him with their whole heart. They do no wrong. But they walk in his ways. No wrong. No variation. No deviation. No wandering off of this path. I read that verse this week. Maybe I had sports on the brain it made me think of a marathon. I've never ran a marathon. I have no intention of running a marathon. There's not one part of my heart that wants to run in a marathon. I'm wholehearted in my opposition against running a marathon. But if you've ever watched people run a marathon, marathon is what, 26.2 miles? Something like that? There are not many marathon runners who set out to run 26.3 miles. They don't want deviations. They don't want detours. They don't want to cut off down this street and I'll catch you back over here. They don't want any of that. They want to move from one point to the next point as quickly as they can. That's the, the aim of a sprinter, isn't it? Have you ever watched the Olympics and the 100-meter dash or the 200 meters or the 400 meters? These guys are so focused on getting from point A to point B in the shortest amount of time and the shortest distance possible, they don't veer off their path and they don't even look off their path. It's a wholehearted focus on this is the race in front of me, and I'm going to get from here to there with no extra distance. And that's the idea in this commitment to God's Word. What does it mean to walk in God's Word? Well, you're wholehearted in your commitment, and there's no deviation in that. But you're committed to the entirety of God's Word. So number one, wholehearted, unwavering commitment. Number two, what does it mean to walk? Walking in the Word of God requires diligence and steadfastness. Those two words go together, verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 calls for diligence. Verse 5 is a prayer for steadfastness. The dictionary defines diligence as careful and persistent work. That's the Oxford Dictionary definition, careful and persistent work. If you've moved through any level of school, and some of you are about to do just that in a few weeks, you need some measure of careful and persistent work. When you start the third grade, you don't know your multiplication facts. Hopefully by the end of the third grade, you've memorized them. It's not an easy thing for third graders. It requires some measure of diligence and work and careful persistence. 
Same is true with phonics. At some level of school, you come in, you don't know much, maybe some letters, maybe some colors, maybe some numbers, but you've got to put all those things together. You've got to put sounds together, and you've got to learn how to read. It requires work. When you get into high school, your teachers begin to expect that not only can you answer A, B, C on a question, but that maybe you could formulate your own answer to the question. You could think about material and process it and digest it and synthesize it together. That doesn't just happen by the fourth grade. That takes work and diligence and commitment over time. The same is true in college. You get into college, you're a nursing student, you take anatomy and physiology, it's not going to be a breeze. You're going to have to be diligent in your study. Some of you got out of college and you had to take some sort of certification exam. It's not easy. You have to work at that. You have to be diligent in that. What's true in education is true in the world of physical fitness and dieting, isn't it? How many of you have ever started a diet or an exercise plan? What happened? I mean, me too, right? We all start. We say, okay, today's the day. It's Sunday. i got to go out. Monday's the day. Starting on Monday, starting on Monday, Monday we start, diet, exercise, physical fitness, here we go. Then what happens? Tuesday comes, and Tuesday someone at the office has a birthday and there's a cake, and you think, well, I don't want to be rude, be so rude to not eat the cake, I'll just have a little piece of cake. And then Wednesday comes and you say, do I really want to wake up early? Not really. And then Thursday night comes and you say, it's still 8,000 degrees in Odessa at 10 o'clock. Do I really want to go outside and work? Netflix and the air conditioner seems really nice. I'm just going to stay right here. And there's no diligence. Physical fitness, dieting, and exercise, it requires a measure of diligence. What about steadfastness? Notice the transition from 4 to 5. God not only wants His his precepts and His commandments to be kept. Verse 4, He wants them to be kept diligently. That's the call on your life. Verse 5 is a prayer. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That word steadfast is defined as a resolute firmness and an unwavering commitment. Unflinching. If you are a Dallas Cowboys fan and you have remained a Dallas Cowboys fan over the last 25 years, you know something about steadfastness. I'm one of those fans. We've had nothing to cheer for, nothing to cheer about. Just a bunch of seasons that ended with people sitting on the ground, hanging their head, saying we were one play away. One more play. One more first down. One more catch. One more of this. If you're still a fan, it's because you're steadfast and you're unwavering. You've had plenty of opportunity to waver. Steadfastness. That's what the call is. That's what the prayer is. God wants His commands to be kept diligently. God, help me to be steadfast in keeping your commandments. How do we walk? One more truth here. Walking in the Word results in God-centered, God-focused worship. Verse 6 says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. He's going to fix his eyes 
on God's commandments. Fix his eyes on God's word. What's the result of that? Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. The commitment, I'm going to fix my eyes on your word. The result of that commitment is I'm going to praise you. I'm going to respond in worship. Let's be more positive about the Cowboys. I don't want to end on a negative note. How many of you remember a player for the Cowboys named Emmett Smith, running back? He was pretty good. He wasn't the biggest. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the strongest. He was incredibly durable. And I can remember as a young boy in Amarillo watching Sunday afternoon football games on Fox, listening to John Madden, the great John Madden, talk about the game. And John Madden saying, look at his eyes. Look at his eyes. Before a play would be run, everyone's set, you're waiting for the ball to be snapped, and the camera would zoom in, and Madden would say, look at his eyes. Look at his eyes. He's focused. He's locked in. He sees what's about to happen. Is he just fast enough to run away from everybody? No. Is he just strong enough to just slough off every blocker? No. But he sees the play, and he sees the defense, and he sees the gaps, and he sees his blockers. His eyes are fixed on what he needs to be focused on. That's what the psalmist says he's going to do, essentially, in verse 6. He says he's going to fix his eyes on God's commandments. And the result of that, when you truly fix your eyes on the Word of God... The result is worship. I'm going to fix my eyes on your commandments, and then I'm going to praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. So I want to say something about church in the United States. I really don't want to sound like the old grouchy guy telling all the other churches to get off our front lawn. It's not my aim. My aim is not to say all all other churches are bad and we are good and we have it all figured out. I'm just saying something that's in the air in Protestant evangelical churches in the United States that I think you need to be aware of. You need to be aware of it for your friends that go to different churches. You need to be aware of it for what you expect here. You need to be aware of it if the Lord moves you from Odessa and you look for a new church. There's a lot of churches in the Bible Belt If you walk in the front door and you find someone in charge and you say to them, do you believe the Bible's the Word of God? They're going to say, yes. And if you say to them, do you believe the Bible is true? They're going to say to you, yes. And that's a good start. If you get any other answer than yes to those questions, you should be out in the parking lot before they finish their answer, right? The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is true. What I'm saying to you is that is probably not enough to determine if a church has a right view of Scripture and if they understand why we have the Bible in the first place. Many places in the Bible Belt will say to you, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, we believe that it's true. But as you listen to how they talk about the Bible, how they read the Bible, how they use the Bible, it becomes clear that they view the Bible only as a tool that we can use to make our lives better. Many churches, they believe that it's God's Word and they believe that it's true, but they treat it like a spiritual encyclopedia. And so they're constantly looking for, where's the entry on uh, divorce? Is there an entry on divorce here? I could just, is there a, is there a, where do I read the part about raising kids? 
Where do I read the part about money? Where do I find what it says about this? And they're flipping through the Bible. They believe it's God's Word, and they believe that it's true, and to their credit, they want to listen to it. But they're only approaching it as a tool to be used to improve some aspect of their life. Now listen, I promise you, when you make the commitments that we're talking about this morning, the Bible will change your life. I promise you that. It will change your life. But the Bible is much more than a tool that God gave you to make your life better. The Bible is God's self-revelation to fallen humanity. The Bible is God telling us a story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And that story tells us who God is. And it tells us how life on this earth works. And it tells us who we are as sinners. And it tells us the truth about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on a cross to save sinners. And it tells you what it looks like to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. And it tells you even about the future. It tells you all of these things. Not so that you can simply make your life better here on this earth, but so that you can know God. So that you can know Him. If He does not speak To us, we don't know Him. But He has spoken to us, and He's spoken to us just not to make our lives better on the margins, but so that we could know Him. And when you know the truth about God, you will respond in worship. And that's what the psalmist is describing here. I'm going to fix my eyes on your word. Not like I'm just trying to figure out how to get out of this situation or deal with this problem. But I'm going to fix my eyes on your word because I want to know you. And when I know you, I am going to praise you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to glorify you with an upright heart when I learn all of your rules. The word of God leads you not just to a better life. It leads you to God. And it leads you to worship. Now, when you add all that together, what you get is blessing. Wholehearted commitment, unwavering, diligence and steadfastness in keeping God's Word, and an understanding that God's Word ought to move you to God-centered, God-focused worship. You add all of that up together, you get blessing. What kind of blessing? I'm not saying that you're going to win the... $1.5 billion Powerball this week. That's not the blessing we're talking about. I'm not saying to you, if you could memorize 100 Bible verses by Tuesday. No, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that God will make everything easy and that everything in your life will go the way that you want it to go. That's not what we're talking about in blessing. We're talking about God's will being done in your life. We're talking about true joy, true happiness, true delight, being realized in your life. We're talking about God's desires coming to fruition in your life, and we're talking about peace and wholeness and rightness in your life regardless of what the circumstances around you look like. That's the promise of Psalm 1. And then we've covered all of it except the very end. Look how it ends at the end of verse 8. Do not utterly forsake me. Why does the psalmist end like that? Why does he say all these nice things about being committed to the Word of God and he's diligent and he's steadfast and he's going to worship 
And he's going to learn. He's going to do all of these things. He's going to put the Word of God at the center of his life. He's looking for God's blessing. And then at the end, he sort of cracks the door with a little bit of doubt to this possibility that God would turn away from his people or he would forsake his people. When I read that section, I think about Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. It's the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua's getting the people ready to go into the promised land. He says all sorts of memorable things. It's like, it's like a coach's big final speech to his team. Lots of things we remember from Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose. Make a decision. He sets it in front of them. And Joshua says, as for me and my house, what are they going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. And he sets it in front of them. He says, you have a decision to make right now here today. And it's a wonderful speech. And the people get fired up. They are so excited. And the people, they hear Joshua with this charge. And they say to Joshua, Joshua, we're in. We'll be strong. We'll be courageous. We'll fear the Lord. We'll keep his commandments. We're going to do all of it. Joshua, you got us 100%. Let's go. And then you come to Joshua 24, 19, and it says this. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. Excuse me? I thought you just said, choose this day who who you're going to serve. And we we said we're going to do it. Like you asked us to do it, and we're saying we're going to do it. And Joshua says, I did ask you to do it, and you did say you're going to do it, but you're not able to do it. He didn't just say you won't do it. He says you're not able to do it. Why are you not able to do it? It's because the Lord's a holy God. He's perfectly holy. And you, people, are not perfectly holy. So you can say that you're going to serve the Lord and be strong and courageous and keep His word, but you're not able to do it. And you need to understand He's a jealous God, and He's not just going to Forgive your transgressions and sins. It's not going to work that way. You can't do it. Joshua was reminding the people that they needed more than rules. They needed grace and they needed mercy. And I think the psalmist had read Joshua 24. I think the psalmist had read Psalm 51, 1 to 5, where David confesses his sin to the Lord. And he talks about sin and iniquity and transgression. Now, none of those words are in Psalm 119, but I think they're implicit in this final cry, do not utterly forsake me. The psalmist is recognizing his sin. That's his falling short. He's recognizing his iniquity. That's taking a good thing and twisting it into a bad thing, a perversion. And he's recognizing his transgression. That's crossing a boundary that God has set. Two of those words show up in Joshua 24, 19. All three of them show up in Psalm 51. And I think we can debate who wrote Psalm 119. Whoever wrote it was at least familiar with Psalm 51 and this grouping of words, this sin and iniquity and transgression. And he's acknowledging for all the things he's promising and committing to, he's acknowledging that God's a holy God and he is not a holy person. So he's acknowledging his sin, and in acknowledging his sin, he's recognizing his need for mercy and grace. Do not utterly forsake me. This will become more clear as we go through Psalm 119. We've just scratched the surface. But he's confessing his sin, and he's acknowledging that he needs mercy and grace from God. Look, two things are true at the same time. And in our brains, we might like to think that only one of them 
is true or can be true, but two things are true. Number one, there is a choice being set before you, just like Joshua set before the people. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Make a decision about how you're going to approach the Word of God. Are you going to be wholehearted in your commitment, or are you going to just pick and choose what you like? Are you going to be diligent and steadfast, or are you going to be lazy? Are you going to allow the Word of God to move you to worship, or are you just going to use it like a dictionary, and encyclopedia? There's an entry here that can help you in your life somehow. Like You've got to make the, the commitments and the decisions and the, the resolutions that, that we've read about in Psalm 1, 1 to 7. And if you do that, there is a real blessing for you. It's not a worldly kind of blessing, but it's a biblical kind of blessing. And I'll be honest with you, it's better than any worldly kind of blessing. As you make a commitment to the Word of God, to live it, to keep it, to do it, to think about it, to memorize it, if you genuinely make that commitment, it's not going to be very long before you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at keeping all these promises and living these things out and making all these changes. I'm not really great at this. And that's where you come down to the end and you say, God, do not utterly forsake me. You're acknowledging your sin and you're asking God for mercy and grace. And to loop all the way back to where we were last week, you're acknowledging that while Psalm 1 begins with blessing for the one who doesn't walk or sit, stand or sit in the way of the wicked or the sinners or the scoffers, you're also acknowledging that Psalm 2 ends with the promise of blessing for the one who will take refuge in the Christ, in the Messiah, in the one who suffered and died for the sins of his people. Not so that God would just sweep sin under the rug and forgive it willy-nilly, but that it would be punished in his son so that we could receive blessing. Both of those things are true. Commit yourself to the Word of God, to walk in the Word of God, and you will receive blessing from God. But understand, as you do that, you will fall far short of His glory, and you will see with greater clarity, day after day after day, your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we stop this morning. We thank You that You have spoken to us. Uh, we're grateful for Your Word. And Lord, as we begin this month-long trek through Psalm 119, uh, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word. Help us to understand how we ought to approach it. Help us to understand uh, what it is intended to do in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to receive what you have for us. Lord, we are thankful for the promise of blessing for people who will be committed to your word. Uh, and as we say that, we acknowledge our sin and our iniquity, and our transgression. And we thank you that blessing has been secured ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died for his people. So Lord, we pray that we would be people who are not only committed to your word, but that our commitment to your word would move us to take refuge in Jesus the Messiah who lived for us and who died for us.